It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Boy, Microsoft pushed out a lot of patches this patch Tuesday. He'll talk about that and we'll answer your questions. Security now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 494, recorded February 10th, 2015. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 206. Security Now is brought to you by Citrix Go To Assist. Citrix GoToAssist offers a secure, cloud-based solution for IT and customer support professionals to provide live or unattended remote support to their employees and customers working from any computer or mobile device. For a free 30-day trial, visit GoToAssist.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones and your security and your privacy online with the man in charge of all of that, Stephen Tiberius Gibson the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Hello, Stephen. Oh, my friend. Great to be with you Good again, as you always. Again. Hey, we got a Q&A yeah, episode. But, yep, we do. Uh, things have been relatively quiet. There's, we've got a bunch of interesting news. Uh, we had a mega patch Tuesday. Today just landed with 55 vulnerabilities. Whoa. And, I, and I, I love one of the phrases that Microsoft posted, so I'll, I'll share that. Uh, I, I sort of... The, the Adobe patches went by, but I just thought I'd give them a nod. The U.S. government is today announcing, I don't know if they have yet, but I know that it was scheduled for today. I got the news beforehand. The, the Cyber Threat Integration Center, with an awkward acronym, um, it's unfortunate because we'll, we'll probably be using it a lot. I thought we'd give the, an update on the um, Anthem breach, some news about Chrome's move to HTTP2. Uh, and then, we, of course, we have car hacking, we have TV eavesdropping, and the news of GPG getting a new infusion of support and oh, more. Good. Oh, good. So lots lots of fun news. And in the show notes is the image of the week, courtesy of our friend Simon Zarafa. I just got a big kick out of this. Uh, it was something like there was a caption like passive aggressive uh, Wi-Fi station ID or something. Um, the the two items at the bottom, I were just I got a, a hoot out of. So, so actually, who- people have started to do this with their uh, their SSIDs on their Wi-Fi networks. Putting yep. putting you know started with you know don't steal my Wi-Fi, and then uh, we have somebody nearby who's an FBI surveillance van. But now it's like it, there's so many Wi-Fi signals in apartment buildings, and you know it's so cluttered that neighbors are actually communicating with one another. So the first <laughs> the first access point is your music is annoying, but they spell your instead of Y O U R, which would be correct Y O U apostrophe R E, a common grammatical error. Uh, and so the response, <laughs> your grammar is more annoying. <laughs> Both of these Wi-Fi access point names. That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, over by Starbucks, uh, there's someone who says something like, uh, the pierced chick upstairs is oh, like, wow. it's like, okay. Okay. Well, there's an image. I don't wow. Know where that, I don't know where she is, but she's pierced, apparently. I'm sticking with my uh, dead rock stars uh, uh, methodology. Yeah. My, my buddy has his named something like, a NORAD Southwest Listening Station. <laughs> or, or it's like, oh, okay. 
I love it. Thank you, Simon. Well, yeah, yeah, those yeah, are fun. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we do. We're on Patch Tuesday uh, here. Uh, Microsoft released nine bundles, which contained at least, it's kind of hard to count them at this stage, 55 dis- distinct uh, security vulnerability fixes. Um, three of the patches are considered critical. And, and I, I, I love the way they described it. An MS-15009, it says, you're just sort of reading along, this security update resolves one publicly disclosed and 40 privately, it's like, what? 40 privately reported vulnerabilities wow. in Internet Explorer. Holy cow. So, baby. You know, and th- this does sort of, I mean, we've noted that there's a, it's not like it's a smooth flow. For whatever reason, there are dead months and then there are catch-up months. And this is clearly one of those. Um, there's a, a vulnerability in the Windows kernel mode driver that involves the rendering of embedded true type fonts. Uh, there's a TIFF vulnerability. There's problems in Office in group, poli- in group policy in the virtual machine manager and something called the Microsoft Graphics Component that I haven't heard referred to before in any security updates. So anyway, the nothing like clearly crucial, um, but certainly worth doing, as everyone will, I'm sure. Oh, and there I did see some notes online that in some cases this can require multiple reboots of a Windows machine, mine, my, because I, I, I fired up my Windows Seven box in which is where I run Skype from, just for this. Got the updates, updated everything, and it was just a single restart. But apparently, in some cases, it can take more than one. So, definitely good to do. Um, and in, you know, back in the old days, we were talking about Adobe all the time. They've had a rough couple weeks. They released a an emergency out of cycle update to Flash to patch a zero-day flaw that was affecting Windows OS X on Macs and Linux, allowing remote code execution on all of those platforms, at least where they were being employed, and noted at the time of the release that there was another known zero-day exploit that that patch didn't fix, but they'll be getting to it soon. So less than a week later, they released released a second zero-day update to Flash. So we've had both of those now behind us. Um, I've seen, you know... um, Firefox has been uh, has like I I did the update and then it said nope you're still not there it's like oh okay and I did it again and then I was able to run something I was using Flash for a couple of days ago so uh, and of course Chrome works to keep itself updated uh, within its own internal update mechanism and so you know this has been pushed out everywhere so it's a little bit of old news but we hadn't mentioned it before so I wanted to and. I don't know how we're going to pronounce this. Uh, C-T-I-I-C. Yeah. And a, Mike Elgin had a little trouble with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? It's okay. a great acronym. So it's, it's, as Mike said, it's an abbreviation, not an acronym. Right. So it's the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, whose name tells you what it does. The Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration 
Um, so this has just been, it's just coming, it's being rolled out today. And the in, in the sort of the pre-announcement, it was noted that the NSA, the DHS, the FBI, and the CIA, all of our three-letter initial um, organizations, each currently have their own cybersecurity groups. And they've not been communicating in any formal fashion with each other. I'm sure they share notes on an ad hoc basis. But similarly to the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center, which was established after the 9-11 attacks, um, this is intended to explicitly create a, a means for the individual cybersecurity groups to pool all their resources and pool their knowledge and hopefully make us as a whole, the U.S., as a whole, more responsive and aware of, of what's going on in, in cyber threats. And, and this is, you know, clearly something that we need to uh, take a look at with, you know, the, in, in the wake of the Sony breach and then the Anthem problems and the problems with Target and Home Depot and so forth. Is it going to replace uh, the DHS CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team, and these other kind of... I don't think so. I think my feeling is this is more secret. So yeah. where, like, for example, DHS CERT is our public-facing announcing group where, where, where we have one place to notify everybody of, of threats publicly right. i think this is going to be you know under wraps this is you know so I, I i i don't think we'll see much of what's actually going on the idea is that behind the scenes much as they've had their own the individual organizations have had their own systems this the the idea is for them to coordinate and and share information I think, you know, stovepiping is the term that's often used for saying, OK, they, you know, they're just not communicating and they're recognizing that they'd be doing a better job overall if they were, if there was some means for them to share things. The uh, consensus in the chat room is it'll be called CTIC. <laughs> well, OK. Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, C-T-I-I-C. CTIC. 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 Yeah. I think that's fine. It, the truth is you probably won't hear it a lot because, as you say, this is more of an internal and private secretive. And, and you need to do both, right? You need a public-facing uh, something like CERT where people learn about security. Like and NSA's open SSL flaws right. can be published and discussed. But you also need a, right. uh, an internal security force, a uh, cybersecurity force. And I, I gather this is more of that. Yeah, and for example, one presumes that ongoing attacks – you know, these groups may be individually monitoring ongoing attacks, but they have different resources that are giving them different visibility. And so, you know, we're not aware at the public level of like what attack is actually happening right now on some government servers somewhere. Presumably some group is, but by by coordinating that information from from their various sources, they can do a better job. Right. So, yeah, I don't I don't think much of this will will come to the service, but we can all sleep easier now, <laughs> or not, <laughs> or, not. or not. Speaking of not sleeping easy, uh, we've not mentioned the anthem breach, which is chilling because of not only the size but the scope of what was leaked. Um, 
The good news is that Anthem, from all reports, did respond very well. I mean, maybe this is the, the uh, while while it's bad that we've had a breach of this scope and magnitude, and I'll discuss that in a second, they they themselves detected it rather than, as normally happens, some third party sees like credentials appearing on the internet and says, eh, by the way, you know, I mean, normally Home Depot and Target found out about these things when, when, when it became clear that the common thread among fraud was that everybody had shopped recently at Home Depot. Well, this is so, so this is way better than that. This is Anthem's own internal security monitoring found the problem. The bad news is that apparently the first malicious access to Anthem's internal subscriber, you know, insurance subscriber database was December 10th. And they first became aware of the suspicious activity on January 27th. So the bad guys were in there apparently exfiltrating data for some length of time. Um, and the the data that was ex- exfiltrated is, of course, the the real crux of this problem. Well, and because, the thing that bothers me is it wasn't encrypted at all, right? Right. What? Right. right. <laughs> That's terrible. By, by, by their own admission, uh, they said that it was it was not encrypted in its database. They also did a little sort of mealy mouthing, saying, "Well, additional encryption would not have thwarted the acts, the attack." Because an administrator's credentials were compromised and security protocols were bypassed. So they're saying, well, okay, but it wouldn't have mattered. At the same time, it's like, well, maybe in this case, but that's not an excuse for not encrypting your database. Because, you know, a simpler form of attack might have just been able to exfiltrate the database, in which case they would have gotten nothing. So, you know, you know, clearly... Clearly, this demonstrates that that they're still not behaving. And remember, this is not Anthem's first problem. They had problems a couple of years ago that we talked about on the podcast, a, a much smaller security problem. But it came to light then they were not encrypting. And now we know they're still not. So that's certainly a problem. Didn't but, learn their lesson. Uh, names, dates of birth, members' IDs. Social security numbers, residential addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, and in some cases, employment information, including members' incomes. So what we're looking at there is the mother load. It is, it is, you couldn't ask for more for identity fraud. And that that's of course the problem is 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 identity theft. Uh, people creating new accounts under under fraudulent credentials and social security numbers and residential addresses. That's th- this essentially is is everything you need in order to impersonate somebody and and get credit under their name. So you know, and of course, yes, there there and eighty million subscribers. If I didn't mention that number before, eighty million. Anthem, of course, is big in California. They have 37 million subscribers in California alone. Um, and and this, this is across their various properties. Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, uh, 
uh, I guess Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Georgia, which is a separate group, uh, Empire Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Amerigroup, Caremore, Unicare, HealthLink, and DCare. I'd be so furious if I were a customer. Because yeah. and the real problem is you cannot change a social security number. Right. It's not right. like a credit card number where you can say, oh, federal government, give me a new one. So well, you, yeah, you have this the rest of your life now. You have this so hanging over your head. There is no remediation. Yes. And with a credit card, um, that's all that's been compromised. And so while, yes, you're then a you're subject to credit card fraud until you but but of, of which you're indemnified from. We've all heard the horror stories of what happens with identity theft. I mean, people people's lives are turned upside down and it's very difficult to 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 recover from. I mean, it, yeah, as you said, Leo, it is it is really bad. Now we have to fix Anthem, this social security issue because, uh, I mean, first of all, the social security folks say don't use your social security number as an identifi as identification. identification, and right. yet the, everybody has it. If you apply for credit, you have to give them your social security number. That's what we're being asked for. Yes, which means that there's you had no recourse if you want health care, if you want a car loan, if you want a credit card. You're going to give your social security number to people who do a crap job of protecting it. Right. And oftentimes it's, you know, uh, I know in some cases, I think I'm trying to think if it, if it was something I did with Verizon a while ago. I, I, I have my my cell phone account through GRC. So we use our corporate tax ID. But had it not been that they wanted my social security number. I mean, that's my tax identification number. So um, <laughs> I think they need it. We need two numbers. We need it needs to be like private key crypto. You need a public number and a private number or something like sort of like a one way function. So yeah. you cannot you can't sort of like a hash of your social security number so that somebody could verify that, you know, your social security number if they know it. You could prove yourself that way by just hashing it and then say, okay, here's the hash, um, but not be able to go the other direction. If you can prove – I'm reading the uh, documentation on the uh, uh, ssa.gov website. If you want to change your social security number, you can in some very specific cases. But one of them is if you've been a victim of identity theft and you continue to be disadvantaged by using the original number. So, But you, ha you can't just change it. Because you want to, you have to prove that you've you. It has to be all after the after the fact. Horses left the barn. It's sad too because I memorized mine when I was sixteen or something. You know, whenever I got when the, you know, when I got it, and I love my number. It's like it's been in my head ever since, and it would be a shame to to have to change it. They they uh, Anthem did bring in an outside security firm, Mandiant. Uh, that is a, a well-known um, sort of inspector of these things, and they got you know thumbs up from from the guy who was who was uh, interviewed by several third parties, saying, "Well, what do you think of the job they did?" Um, and uh, th this guy Dave D'Amato is the managing director of Mandian, who said that uh, immediately after Anthem noticed the incident. They reset some passwords and performed a series of actions to remove the attacker from the environment. Any passwords that were affected by the breach were reset, and they began blocking traffic associated with the attacker and removing any compromised systems from their network. So 
Oh, and it was a sophisticated attack. Apparently, some custom, um, never-before-seen backdoors were inserted into the network somehow. And it does sound like uh, an administrator's credentials were compromised. So, you know, this was a... This was a deliberate, focused attack. Um, we have to learn, as as we're finding out, how to do better. Um, you know, there needs to be better, better protection. Oy. And boy, you're Oy. right, Leo. I mean, this is this is you know devastating for 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 customers of of Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and of the other properties. You know, about half of whom are here in California. They're already seeing um, phishing attacks. Uh, yeah, with the Anthem logo, an email from somebody pretending to be Anthem saying, "Hey, we had this problem. We better log in. <laughs> Change <laughs> Click stuff. this. Yeah, yep, yeah. Um, so, uh, if you if you're an Anthem customer, and you now congratulations. Uh, you need to know a lot about protecting your uh, good credit. You need to know how to file a fraud alert. You need to know how to check your credit report regularly. I mean, welcome. Yeah. In fact, probably yeah, we should they, all be doing this, but they they did set up something called anthemfacts.com, uh dot com, and it was a little unimpressive. There's someone named Joe who runs Anthem and he signed his he signed him his name with a big happy Joe and noted in there that he too was a victim meaning that he was one of the 80 million. It's like, well, okay, Joe, that doesn't sure, really Sure, all make- the Anthem employees were <laughs> Anthem customers, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that aye, doesn't aye, really aye, help aye, me. Aye, aye. Yeah. Uh, 80 million people. Wow. Boy, hackers are just going to have a field day. Yeah, it's not, gonna, it's not yeah. good. So um, Google announced yesterday that with Chrome 40, which is in the process of rolling out, um, they will be adding support for HTTP slash two. Remember that HTTP slash one had was the original standard. Then we were we've been running on one point one for the last sixteen years since nineteen ninety nine. So it is time for us to move forward. And we talked a couple of weeks ago. There was that neat site HTTPS versus HTTP, which demonstrated that. Speedy was, in fact, well-named. It was so speedy that it is faster to use Speedy with with encryption than to use HTTP without. So as to, and to the extent that we move to this next generation encryption, there's no longer an argument to be made that it is a speed impediment. It's just not. So what Chrome is doing, and, 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 I, and I put here in the show notes to remind myself, this is, this is truly Google at its best. Um, there's nothing heavy-handed about this. All browsers now support Speedy, which was started out as Chrome's test protocol. You know, they put it in their browser. They supported it on their servers and of course, lots of people using Chrome were also had had the occasion to use Google's properties, increasingly so. And so Google was able to meter this and and in and, and install 
metrics surveys to, to, to tune it and tweak it and see how much benefit was gained from this part of Speedy and how much benefit was gained, you know, in the real world from, from, from that part. And ultimately, Chrome, IE, Firefox, Opera, Safari, and even, even Amazon Silk server all support Speedy just because it was a good thing. Um, it then essentially unchanged just some little, you know, committee-ish uh, tweaks here and there. It essentially unchanged became the 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 core of the HTTP slash two protocol. We'll give it a full podcast here as soon as it as soon as it settles down and and gets ready to to be finalized. Um, uh, which is like right in the process of being happening to to give full coverage of what what the change from one point one to two means, but they're now going to support this next generation in Chrome forty, um, and then they're, they're, they'll leave Speedy in place um, while HTTP slash two comes fully up to speed, and then their plan is next year in twenty sixteen to at some point uh, remove support for Speedy itself from Chrome, uh, presuming by that time that everybody, all, all of the, you know, it, it basically HTTP slash 2 will have had a chance to, to take hold. And we're still looking for, you know, more pervasive server-side support. That's, that's sort of the, the next piece of this is for, for that to become widespread. Everything supports 1.1. And this this puts good pressure. I mean, essentially, Speedy itself puts good pressure on servers to to begin supporting that. You would, if you wanted to support it, you would do it at the server level. You'd update Apache. You'd put a plug in or something in Apache. Correct. Yeah, it's not the it's not the web page itself. It's the server. Right. Exactly. It, it it's at the because the, the the web page is up at the application. You know, at at the content level, right. and this is down in the in the in the protocol level itself. You're going to hate our new web page. It's all JavaScript. It's all Node.js. You're going to just hate it. <laughs> I, 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 I'll drop my drawers for twit.tv. <laughs> well, but see, but you, you, you just say no script, please allow Leo to yeah to take over my computer and, <laughs> and use it in any way he, he sees fit. The good news is we don't, don't have your social security number, Steve. Actually, well, we do. And I was, Wait a minute. I, <laughs> but probably not on your website. Not on the any, website. I can promise not you. Not on the website. Yeah. Actually, you know what's um, funny? And you probably got your 1099 at some point in the last few weeks. And, um, and in fact, I got a request from you to update my W-9 information. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I sent that back to your W-9 coordinator. I thought, but, oh, yeah, you have a W-9 coordinator. I'll, oh, yes. But because, well... This is a sideline, but we use ADP, which is a payroll system, and you're actually not uh, uh, being paid by us. None of our employees work for us. They all work for ADP in Florida because of the way the way the system works. So, but we yeah, trust that I, they have good security because they do have your social. We don't. GRC, do. GRC always used a, an outside service yeah, like that. It just makes can. so much more sense. No, it's, crazy it's crazy to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, did you see sixty minutes? No, I heard they talked about DARPA. Yes, they did, but they also gave a really disturbing demonstration, which I, I'm glad they did because the public needs to have seen this and now has of uh, car hacking, and 
um, the the most disturbing aspect of it was uh, it's funny too because the car that they were demonstrating I'm sure aficionados of cars knew what this was but they blanked out all of the identifying information about what make and model this car was for the sake of putting this on the air the disturbing thing was that not only did someone as we've seen before you know hack into the dashboard and um uh and and put the the 60 minutes reporter's name up in the display uh, this was Leslie Stahl who was doing this segment and so it's you know hi Leslie and which he thought was cute but it overrode her braking and in a in a non-braking that is where she slammed her foot on the pedal as the car was approaching and then drove through a set of cones it disabled her brakes and so so first they did some little cutesy stuff as as you're showing now where you know it squirted way, her windshield wipers where did they so did they get the hacker from central casting because <laughs> heavy like, right. heavy set guy with a beard and a black t-shirt like it's perfect yeah, hacker yeah right yeah. So first they squirted soap on the windows and turned on the windshield wipers. Like, oh, okay, that's cute. Uh, then right there, they're showing that they somehow overloaded the car's systems in order to uh, get access to the car's com- uh, networked computers. Um, and so, you know, she thinks this funny, but then they bring her around and and have her uh, driving to a set of orange cones. I think that's what you're, you're showing right now. Yeah. It's like, okay, now go up here drive and stop cones. in front of these, yeah. drive up to these cones. And Mr. Neckbeard has a different plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, my brakes, they don't work. Ah! Oh, she, now, that's disturbing, Leo, because I, I have a hard time. I mean, I, we know that cars are now full of computers, and that that this is going to be a problem, but to to for the computer to be able to override the braking system to me seems irresponsible. Maybe you need it for like you know to stutter the wheels in order to do anti skid braking, but that ought to be the limit of what it can do. I mean, there's there's there there's a a point here where if the car is as they say you know fly by wire. Um, it has to be responsible. I for think that what you could the point way it operates. to is cost savings on this. And I've yeah. talked to Ford about this, and they say we have a we have two computer systems, and the system that runs your multimedia center, your which entertainment is, system, which is the point of access for a lot of these hacks, is no, in no way connected to the computer system that runs your car, and and never should be. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I think if the same computer is running your car and your radio, I think that's a cost savings, not a not a sensible thing to do. So Senator Markey um, asked a, a all of the car manufacturers, sent them a questionnaire. And I have a bunch of tweets for the show that I tweeted. I'm sorry, a bunch of links for the show that I tweeted. One is bit.ly. Slash bit dot ly slash car hacking, which links to the, a twelve page report that that the senator's office just published. I think it was yesterday, um, which details 
the responses that they received in response to the questionnaire. And it's a little um, disturbing because a lot of the companies don't apparently have the kind of security that we would like to see in place. So uh, I, I don't know how this gets resolved. You know, we have legislation to mandate seatbelts and uh, mileage. So it looks like unless they're unless they take responsibility for the security of of their you know their their mobile computers you know it's one thing for your thermostat at home to to be taken over it's a little worrisome when that can happen to your car and and like you i've not dug into this deeply i don't know the details of this but uh we need our our car makers to be responsible and of course we've got all the news about the samsung tv listening to people Leo, <laughs> um, so uh, there's been a lot of tweeting about this, and uh, Parker Higgins, who's the EFF's director of copyright activism, tweeted that Samsung's smart TV privacy policy warns users not to discuss personal information in front of their television. Um, so uh, I, I dug into this a little bit because I was curious what the Samsung privacy policy was. And so quoting directly from what Samsung has, it's, uh, Samsung says, you can control your smart TV and use many of its features with voice commands. Sorry, I was if in the you, bathroom. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> nope, no I problem. peed all over my shoes when you talked to me. That was uh, oh, a, <laughs> sorry. Oh, what? Are you, you're, you're able to listen? Oh, yeah. Uh, I keep, I keep as, a, as I monitor. Well, I don't want to ah, miss it. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, go ahead. Mine does so, this, by the way. Uh, okay, so, yeah. so we'll talk about this. Yeah. So, Sam, of course, Samsung said if you enable voice recognition, you can interact with your smart TV using your voice to provide you the voice recognition feature. Some voice commands may be transmitted along with information about your device, including device identifiers, to a third-party service that converts speech to text or to the extent necessary to provide the voice recognition features to you. In addition, Samsung may collect and your device may capture voice commands and associated texts so that we can provide you with voice recognition features and evaluate and improve the features. Please be aware that if your spoken words include personal information or other sensitive information, that information will be among the data captured and transmitted to a third party through your use of voice recognition. If you do not enable voice recognition, you will not be able to use interactive voice recognition features, although you may be able to control your TV using certain predefined voice commands. While Samsung will not collect your spoken word, Samsung may still collect associated texts and other usage data so that we can evaluate the performance of the feature and improve it. So, um, what do you think? I think this is a tempest in a teapot. I commend Samsung for uh, Full disclosure. being explicit, uh, as they should right. be. But most devices, including, by the way, your smartphone, aren't smart enough to understand what you're saying. They have to send it to a server Siri does this, Google does this, uh, Windows Cortana does this. They send it to a server, which interprets it, 
and then sends the information back. I mean, uh, and I would not expect the TV to be smart enough to do that. In fact, they say that. They say, well, if there's certain canned responses, we can handle those. But everything right. else is going to go to a server. I'm not sure why they're using a third party. I'm glad they revealed that. But it may just be they don't have the expertise to do this. Um, who knows what they're doing? They may be using a human, uh, like an Amazon Mechanical Turk-style uh, system to interpret what you're saying. Um, the good news is you just turn it off. And I have, by the way. I never found the speech recognition to be very valuable. But I am not concerned. And about you know if you have an xbox one it's always listening always and always sending everything you say back to microsoft and it just uh, it bothers people but it doesn't it's like so what well yeah so i think i i agree with you i think full disclosure makes sense i think that what i like is what amazon did with the fire tv where you have a button you press that presumably starts it listening you then say what you want to say and then you let go now that's less magical than you know hello google or you know hello watch or you know wh you know where it's sort of like always listening so you just are able to like start it to start it to listen by addressing it using well, some although in keyword. those cases for instance the hello google that doesn't leave the phone because the phone is smart enough in fact you have to train it to, to be able to recognize much. it and yes. then send the rest of it to space so that's yeah, much I, I, like pushing a button, and I, I and I don't know if how did I don't. I'm trying to remember on my Samsung. I turned it off almost immediately, not because I, I didn't I was worried about privacy, but just because it wasn't useful. Also, you can also wave at it, and every time I stretched while I was watching TV, the TV <laughs> would start to do stuff. Yes, master. So I don't remember if you issue a command or not. Uh, I think you have to somehow signal. No, no, they don't want to send everything you say upstream. Oh. They couldn't possibly be streaming everything that everybody who owns one. <laughs> Why yeah. would they do that? <laughs> yeah. They're not owned by the NSA, are they? No. Well, I, I think that, you know, technical users will understand, for example, in the case of Siri, that your phone is not itself figuring this out. I mean, for, for example, your phone doesn't know everything that you're asking Siri about. So... Your your phone is your conduit to something which is performing this this speech recognition, which is is really impressive. I mean, it's like in the same way that no one can beat computers at chess anymore. Well, computers have or or like you know Watson, IBM's Watson can actually play Jeopardy and win against the best humans that we have. It's clear that within within constraints. Computers are now getting good enough to to do things they have not traditionally been able to do. So, you know, playing, you know, winning at Jeopardy, playing chess, and now answering questions within certain, you know, a, a narrow range they, they're able to do and provide valuable features. I can't wait. <laughs> Mike Elgin has um, the new Amazon Echo. You know, that's that black uh -huh. tube. And yep. it's always listening. So right. you say things like, Alexa, what time is it? And in a beautifully, by the way, best voice synthesis ever, voice, it'll say it's 4.53. And in fact, I, th I don't know if we're reviewing it today on Before You Buy. I think we are. Um, so right I, after this podcast. Yeah, I immediately ordered it. <laughs> of course In you fact, did. what I want, the real problem with it is it can only be in one place. You want one in every room because right. you pretty soon become dependent on it. 
And I would like Sonos. I want Amazon to buy Sonos because I have Sonos speakers in every room. Sonos already has beautiful sound. And I want them to build that capability in a Sonos speaker so that I can, as I wander through my house, say things like, I wonder where I left my socks. It's great. Who cares who's listening? It would also have olfactory sensors built in then. (laughs) (laughs) Clean (laughs) (laughs) socks. Now, you know, but this – actually, I think the real point of this story is this is why companies don't disclose because you see all the attention – Samsung got for disclosing something that pretty much everybody else is already doing. Right. And disclosure scares the hell so out of people. They were being responsible. They were doing the right I'm, thing. I'm interested though in your in your comment that you quickly become dependent upon it. Is that what Mike has found? I um, mean, I don't know. I, you know, my 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 you know, now we have devices that listen all the time. And right. I very I don't use them all that much. The the reason I don't use the phone that much is because you kind of have to get it out and speak to it. Alexa is there. It has a very nice, uh, some sort of array mic technology because anywhere in the room, in a normal wow. tone of voice, you can say, well, here's an example of a query that Mike said. Try this. Uh, Alexa, and by the way, there's only two words you can use right now, Amazon or Alexa. But the nice. uh, in fact, I asked Alexa, Alexa, is there any other w- name I can use for you? And she said, you can all, right now you can only use Amazon and Alexa. But the implication is soon you'll be able to use more. It is like interacting with a human. Wow. And uh, it's very HAL 9000, very much. And so the query that Mike suggests, he said, ask her how old uh, Michael Jackson is. And Alexa, so I say, Alexa, how old's Michael Jackson? And then Alexa says, well, Michael Jackson died in w- whatever year. But at the time of his death, he was 50 years, eight months, thir- th- three weeks and two days old. <laughs> It's very smart. <laughs> and I'm just, I am very, I, you know what? I think if we can get over this, this privacy. This is transformative. Yes. But we have to get over this hump. And what I'm afraid of is that people are so worried about privacy that Congress will pass a law against that stuff and we won't have this technology. Well, I love the idea of a key phrase to enable. I think, as I said, that's why I like the Fire TV. I press the button and then I say something and then it goes and finds it. And it's like, it's shockingly good. It's like, okay, this stuff has arrived. And we should understand that you verbally asking Alexa how old Michael Jackson is, is indistinguishable from you typing the question into into Google. It's that same kind of thing. It's it's identical in in every privacy aspect. It's just you're doing it verbally rather than textually. And it's it it does become magical to be able to do it it verbally. And I do think that, by the way, Connect and these other devices, all of them, and I'm sure the Samsung as well, have trigger phrases because they don't want to be sending every bit of data upstream all the time just for the, just the cost of it is ridiculous. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just too much impossible. Data. Yeah. Yeah. So they it, all I mean, have a trigger. If it's not a button push as with Siri, it's a, it's a verbal command as it is with Google. Um, and there was also facial recognition I encountered in Samsung's privacy policy. Do, what's that about? You like, you're like mm. able to log into Samsung just by staring at your screen. Well, the, uh, I, I haven't tried that. I don't know if my TV <laughs> is smart enough to do that, but but Xbox One does. When I walk uh, in the room, it says "Hello, Leo." Except you also said that it misrecognizes. It uh, thinks Lisa is her son because Lisa <laughs> doesn't have an account, but apparently she looks enough like her son that when right. she walks in the room, it says, "Hi, Michael." I, by the way, again, I guess I'm a sucker, love this. I don't have to log in. 
It yeah. just knows I'm there. And when you're playing a game, it's great because if another person sits down, it'll say, oh, hi, Michael. And you can and Michael can join in. You know, and it's like my thumb is now my access to right. my phone. And they and Apple has nailed that technology and it is never a problem any longer. It doesn't, you know, it's just thank you very much. You know, I started using the iPhone. I mentioned before the show uh, that I started going back to the iPhone 6 because I'm going to want to get ready for the Apple Watch. And I have to admit. That, that for that alone, the iPhone is a superior device. The finger yeah, play is well, incredible, and, and and the Squirrel client for iOS. When when you are facing a, a QR code and you want to identify yourself to the website, you just put your your thumb on the button and right. you're logged in right. because it's like okay, the person doesn't just have Steve's phone; they also have Steve's finger, and hopefully, it's still attached. I just think that there should be. Larry Page asked for this a couple of years ago at Google I.O. A place for those of us who just want all the new technology and don't give a damn if somebody's listening. So that we can go there and the rest of you can sit in your little cave and have privacy. <laughs> Good luck. Well, <laughs> I, and, I don't care. I want the stuff. Making the, I think, I, I think the right, the right solution is for Samsung not to give be hurt yeah. because... Everybody else also needs to disclose, in which case Samsung right. isn't being penalized. I think disclosure is important, yep. but just make it an option. Allow it to be turned off, exactly. as Samsung has done. Exactly. That's the right answer. And I, I think it's neat that, they, that uh, Amazon gave their thing the name Alexa, because you're not probably going to, it's, you know, it's, it's not coffee pot or something that you might say by mistake. It's, you know, it's, it's a... It's a word. It's a name for that. And I guess maybe if it's not um, sensitive enough, you might be talking about a, a, a Lexus car, and it might go boing. Does it make a sound when it acknowledges you? Nope. It, like, uh, it has a little glowing ring on the top. Yeah. That, that wakes up seen, and starts I've seen, going, I've seen the picture, or, or I've seen the commercial. It's yeah. cool. Somebody, Some idiot in the chat room said, oh, well, it's just the same as ha uh, Anthem have giving up your social security number. No, it's not. Sorry, <laughs> it's not the same. You can want security of your social security number and still want something you could talk to in your house. They're not mutually inconsistent. And I agree with you. Give us the choice. Let us turn. But what I, can, what I really am concerned about is, is these, is these uh, privacy um, advocates shutting down technologies because they don't want uh, that to happen. And so just give us the choice and disclose. That's it. That's all you need to do. Give us the choice and disclose. And I agree with you. If everybody did that, then there'd be no harm to Samsung for telling the truth. Right. And the fact is, I, I, I think certainly for some people, they will, they will be concerned enough that they'll choose not to use it. For many others, it's like, hey, this is convenient. I want to be able to just ask the air what time of day it is. So cool. <laughs> choice that's all yeah yeah danny says well that's what privacy is no no see that's the problem there are there are people out there who uh would very much like to prohibit this kind of stuff and uh, you know if you if you lobby loud and long enough about it congress is going to say well i guess we should prevent this and i i really hate to see technology held back by luddites that's all 
Yeah, I think it's too late to for to have held but back. I think we just, so. we just and and I have no problem with requiring the the people who offer these services to be responsible with the information that is collected. We we need that too. I mean, and here's the and here's Anthem. Anthem is offering a service called health insurance, but we could argue the fact that in 2015 their database of 80 million subscribers was not encrypted was irresponsible of them they can say oh well the nature of the attack was such that they would have been able to decrypt it anyway okay that this attack but not all attacks and having that much data that crucial crucially personal data not encrypted there's just no excuse for that in 2015 so you know thank you for offering health insurance but not for uh doing an inadequate job of protecting the you know social security number that you got along with it um and why do they have to have that is that is that clearly important for them to have no, my, in fact, to have, Dr. Mom says she does not give it to health insurance companies. So I, I but I just don't know uh, what the policy. I don't, I don't know what, what hoops you'd have to jump through. You obviously have to give it to an employer. The whole purpose of the social security number is to identify income for, for tax reporting for, purposes. Well, right. for taxes and for retirement for social security. and social security, right? Yeah. Accrual, yeah. But I don't see any reason to be using it as identification number for any other purpose. So um, we have a nice story. Um, 18 years ago, uh, Werner, is it Koch, K-O-C-H, decided to uh, create GPG in 1997. He wrote the the first instance of GNU Privacy Guard. Yay. Yes. I use it. Love it. And um, it was never a huge money winner for him. he notes that since 2001, meaning since it was four years old, um, 14 years ago, it had been generating about $25,000 a year in GPG donations. So, you know, below the, the, the income that a, a similarly skilled programmer would have been able to generate by hiring himself out to a company – um, yet he kept it going. In 2013, he was right on the verge of calling it quits. He has a young daughter. Uh, he's the sole bre- breadwinner for his household. And it just, it was straining him too much to be the sole developer and support for this thing and not be generating any greater amount of revenue. But the Edward Snowden revelations occurred um, right at the point where he was thinking of of bailing, and he thought, "Okay, I can't. This is too clearly too important." And of course, GPG was what uh, Snowden was using in order to communicate. So, uh, so he decided to stick it out. He then, in December, uh, started trying to do a to crowdfund and generate revenue, which was more successful than he had been so far. But wasn't generating it wasn't generating the amount of money that he was hoping to. So on February 5th, a Julia uh, Angwin did a posting, a story about him in ProPublica. And this went public 
her story did, her posting, at 10.24 a.m. on the 5th. By 8.10 p.m. that day, um, he had reached his funding goal, which was $137K. Facebook and the online payment processor Stripe both independently pledged to donate $50,000 a year. Yay. And her, her going public with a story allowed him to then disclose that the Linux Foundation's core infrastructure initiative had just the week before given him a one-time grant of $60,000. So this was a big win. He's now rolling in dough. He can, he, he can afford to hire a full-time programmer, which he has wanted to do, in order to really get behind this and, and give it what it needs. And thanks to Facebook and Stripe, and I want to say to both, both Facebook and Stripe, thank you for this, that to, they have combined created a 100 k a year ongoing pledge to support GPG. So... Um, as we've seen, it's often just the case that people need to make it clear that something that is essentially core infrastructure is in need of of some financial help. And there are big public companies uh, and, and well-funded organizations that are able to say, oh, glad you told us. We're, we're going to help you. Yay. Yeah, so and, this is a, a nifty story and a nice turnaround. And we, we recommended uh, uh, GNU Privacy Guard GPG for a long time. It's it's basically the open source version of PGP, uh, which makes it better than PGP because it's open source. Right. And uh, it's available. He maintains GPG for Win, which is the Windows version, GPG the number four Win. And then there's GPG Tools, which is the Mac version, which I recommend. Yep. Um, and I've given them money. Uh, I didn't realize it didn't go back to flow back to him. So uh, I'm glad to support him. It's just such important uh, work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also ran across, and I'm trying to think where this was. I think it was someone, oh, no, it was in uh, the mailbag for today's um, Q&A, but sent anonymously. So I don't know who it was from. But it's an interesting slide presentation. Uh, I created a bit.ly link, uh, bit.ly slash SSL slides, all lowercase, S-S-L-S-L-I-D-E-S. And what I liked about this, so this was a Google presentation showing the work of the Chromium team trying to come up with a, like, the, the way to communicate the difficult concept of the various ways a communication from the, the a communication over the internet through your browser could be insecure. And, and I, I really I was impressed by this. It, it demonstrates the, the depth of their intent uh, and it was just a good demonstration of, I don't know, it's like 30-some 30, 30 slides at least, um, where they show the way Chrome has evolved over time to to show different types of problems. And and it, it illustrates, and, and they're also like giving themselves a grade, A through F, and they're demonstrating from their own metrics the 
the number of people that have responded in which fashion to different types of warnings that 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 Chrome has offered over time. Um, and anyway, it's really interesting. SSL slides is the is the resource on bit.ly. And so I wanted to aim our listeners at it because I, I think uh, we'll find it interesting. And it it highlights the the real problem that that we it's sort of a, a, a fundamental problem with this whole experience. That is, we want the using the web to be simple and easy and safe, yet it really does rely on an interlocking family of complex technologies. Um, you were talking on the Tech Guy show this weekend, Leo, about how, um, for example, uh, I think somebody, what you were giving a, a, a complete answer to a complex question, <laughs> and somebody, somebody said it was, was a Steve Gibson answer. <laughs> right. They were complaining that it was too complicated. Well, it probably and was for the said, radio audience, but look, there's no way to do sorry. it simpler. Yeah. Right. If you gave a simple answer, it would be wrong. Yeah. And unfortunately, only a full answer is correct. We were talking about and, bandwidth and why, you know, DSL versus cable and, oh, my God. Right. Was, yeah. Right. Right. So this is good. So, this, this slideshow is good. Yeah, it, it really is good because it demonstrates the, the, the problem of what do you what can you show the user that they will that they will understand? Because, you know, you show like the the fields of a security certificate and even podcast listeners. I mean, even listeners to our podcast are like, wait a minute, is that good or bad? I mean, it's complex stuff. And so, so they they break it down in terms of like the 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 visual semantics. How how can we how can we convey what we want to convey, which is unfortunately complex. There's just no way around the fact that it's complicated, um, so that people will like get the message that we're trying to give them, rather than just go, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I commend that that slide deck to our listeners. I think everyone will find it interesting. And you've been stepping through it while yeah, I've been talking. She grades so. uh, various uh, messages as to re, you know intelligibility and accuracy. Right. And it's it's not an easy thing to do. No, I mean th- I, what I liked about this was it really does highlight that it, this is a hard problem. That is, we have complex technology which users who don't want to know anything about that have to understand. Just like your caller over the weekend said, well, why are my pages loading slow? And it's like, oh, <laughs> where, do, where do I begin? <laughs> that was the question, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Blame Canada. Uh, yeah. there's, the, there's the easy answer, but I don't know how useful that is. <laughs> yeah. This is good. So, and, I, and I like this. Opinionated design works where text fails. Yeah, exactly. Where like you have, sort of have to like have Fred Flintstone with a mallet hitting yeah, him over say the it head out loud. Yeah. in order to really to get their yeah. attention. Good. It's good. And she's I don't know if she's a Google employee or with she's with the Chromium uh, effort, which is a Google effort. So Right. Adrienne Porter Felt yeah. is is her name really with, with the Chrome security team where they're like really they're working they're about to figure this. What do we tell yeah. people? How? How yeah. how do we explain this? Yeah. 
Yeah, which is why I'll be interested to see what they do uh, when, where they're trying to tell people that, I mean, look at these, the issues that addressed were like fraudulent certificates, something clearly fraudulent. So how then are they going to say the certificate of the website you're visiting is using a hash function that we're trying to get websites to stop using, even though there's really no problem with it today. Good luck communicating that subtlety, (laughs) you know, in an icon. I don't know how you do that. Um, Oh, speaking of slides, um, I... Many people have wished that my uh, DigiCert presentation video slides were available. And so while I was in Bitly land today, I created bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash squirrel slides, S-Q-R-L-S-L-I-D-E-S, which uh, gives you a PDF of my uh, slide presentation for uh, this uh, this squirrel presentation so you could sort of flip through it while i was jumping around on stage there or just uh browse through it yourself so a bunch of people have asked um i did want to follow up on last week uh we had audible as a sponsor and we mentioned in that context the expanse series uh which you had listened to leo in the past because when you went there they are they were available on audible i finished the first book now which was wonderful uh, really fun. So I, 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 was in, I was liking it last week, though I, I was think I was like a quarter of the way in. It's behind me now, and I'm into number two, which is every bit as good. So I can now, without reservation, recommend uh, at least the first book, and as far as I am in the second book of the Expanse series of sci-fi. Um, I, it's, it's just enjoyable. It's sort of classic space opera. You know, it's... Uh, you know, it's not super complex. It's it's not nearly as involved as Peter Hamilton's stuff, but just good old fashioned um, uh, space opera. And remember that the reason I got into this was that Mark Thompson noted that the Sci-Fi Channel was turning this into a series that that, that we'll be seeing later this year. So I wanted to read it first, um, and some interesting uh, uh, fun stuff. So yay. And I, for uh, my weekly spin right mention, I thought I would just, in the last 12 hours, I saw two tweets that came by because they happened to have the at SGGRC in them. Um, And they weren't actually directed to me. James Bliss tweeted, again, thanks to at SGGRC, it appears to others that I have a superpower. I do. All thanks to him. And it's called Spinrite. And then he linked to GRC.com, the, the What It Does page on GRC.com. That was the first tweet. And the other one was from James Munn, who apparently I, I saw part of a conversation, a dialogue he was having, because, again, he, he had at SGGRC in it. So he tweeted to a Patrick Kelpeck. He said, get and run Spinrite 6 on it from the great SGGRC exclamation point, it has rescued many a HD, obviously a hard drive for me. So thanks, James. Oh, they're both names, James, James and James. Thanks for your for your tweets and, and let me share them. Yeah. Before we uh, get into our questions and we've got some good ones for Mr. Gibson, I think I might mention our sponsor. Go to assist dot com. The number one global market leader 
and remote support. GoToAssist is a cloud-based, secure, of course, a solution for IT and customer support professionals so that you can provide the remote support your clients, your employees, your customers want. And you can be on any computer and any mobile device. And it's so sweet. I want you to try it today. We've got a 30-day free trial for you if you visit gotoassist.com. I don't have to tell you that managing your company's uh, IT support needs is challenging, especially if you have remote or mobile employees. You've got to handle those urgent tech support requests quickly, keep productivity up, but you've got to make sure, you know, if you're supporting somebody remotely, that the security is 100%. GoToAssist is really great. The number one leader for a reason. It's easy to use. It's cloud-based. It's secure. And you will work fast. You will work efficiently. With GoToAssist Remote Support, you can provide live or unattended support remotely to any computer, any mobile device, screen share with employees to diagnose and fix their problems faster and more effectively. They also kind of make sure they makes them feel good. They're getting that personal touch. And you can use GoToAssist apps to deliver support anytime, anywhere from your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device. GoToAssist, it's easy to set up. Just take a minute. Whether you're supporting one coworker or, in my case, my mom, 10 employees or even 1,000. If you work in IT, you got to use GoToAssist. At least do me this favor. Try it for 30 days. And it's, it's very affordable. And the pricing is very straightforward. I want you to try it free for 30 days. Visit gotoassist.com. Click the Try It Free button. You don't have to give them a credit card. There's no contract. It really is just a 30-day free trial. Gotoassist.com. Go to assist, G-O-T-O, assist.com. Click the Try It Free button now. And I'm telling you, whatever tools you're using, you're going to love this. <laughs> what are you laughing we, at? Uh, we got a tweet from a Lisa Percival who is listening to the podcast, apparently playing it out loud. And we triggered her Amazon Echo in did. the other, in the other room <laughs> by referring to it by name. Alexa, tell her we're Alexa. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, what time is it? Oh, God. That's pretty funny. We must be very loud in the house. Um, did she say whether she likes it? I ordered. I, I, you know, it's ninety nine bucks if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, which is and who isn't? Yeah, which makes it a really. <laughs> I think that's got to be below cost for Amazon. But they know because you. So you have an app, and they know that uh, you could say things like Alexa, uh, don't forget put put diapers on my uh, shopping list, or you know, and it. But it doesn't. What's nice? I was a little worried. Mike reassured me because I did that immediately <laughs> to Mike, and uh, he said, "Don't worry, it doesn't go to, it doesn't actually order them. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Nor does it go to your What's Amazon it? cart; it goes to the app, and then you can act upon it later." Ah, oh, interesting. I, I I think you're right. It just sounds too fun to have it, and so you just put it somewhere, and it ties into Wi-Fi, and it's it'll there. play music for you. That's why I want them. They gotta do a deal with Sonos. I think ah. you could say Amazon, you know. Play my Elvis playlist, and it'll it'll start playing. And it's it's got decent. It's a decent speaker, but it's it's one speaker. It's a tube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was enjoying your. Uh, what was the speaker that you had stuck to your head uh, last week? The uh, it, it was it you it it, it used a uh, another surface as its base reflex. Oh yeah, yeah. That was and kind of was, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and you were liking it because you, you you were the only one who could hear it, but it was going directly into your brain. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be bad for you. Um, question number one from Matt at an undisclosed location. He worries about fuzzy string matching. Who doesn't? I know. 
those fuzzy strings. You guys are such geeks, man. Uh, Matt writes, as a, oh, wait a minute, now somehow I blew it. Here we go. Steve, I thought I recalled you saying that you developed a novel method, oh, I remember this, for fuzzy string matching. I believe it was for processing, recognizing spin-right testimonials in your records. I realize your plate's awfully full and you've no shortage of topics for security now, but I wouldn't mind hearing about your solution. Thanks for all you do for your community. Okay, so I, I, I see people asking this from time to time, and uh, Matt's memory is correct. I spent some time dipping into a, to a sort of a, an unsolved question in computer science, and... Uh, it was technically called LRS, longest repeating string. So it wasn't a fuzzy string match as well as as much as a longest repeating string. The idea was that I was sometimes editing the testimonials to fix grammar a little bit just because I'm posting it in someone's name and I wanted to look right for them. And that meant that if I wanted to find duplicates in order not to duplicate post... I needed to find a match where most of it matched, but not all of it matched. And that meant that, you know, if there was a long run of text that was exactly identical, then that was probably the same, the same testimonial in, in two different locations. So uh, I and a bunch of neat uh, followers in, I think it might have been in, we have a news group called Think Tank where we go to, this sort of do brainstorming stuff, uh, worked out an, a what was actually probably a new algorithm in computer science, which um, I was able to describe in text well enough to, to the people who had been following along because I iterated the solution like three or four times. Every time I came up with something substantially better, um, they were able to independently write it in a higher level language because, of course, I was implementing mine in assembler. Anyway, the point is that it is on GRC um, at grc.com slash dev, D-E-V slash L-R-S. And the source code is there from uh, 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 <laughs> all I can think of is his handle, Sparky. Um, Masm? Paul. Oh, his, um, a person wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and, and all of mine are there. You can and say just Sparky's source code is there. Sparky's, Spar- yeah. Uh, I can't believe I'm I'm blanking Paul Byford? his last name, but Paul, yes, Byford, Paul Byford. Um, uh, and all of my exes are there, and a list of all the iterations we went through. So for any, for anyone who's interested, I'm I never had a chance to put it on the website because it wasn't crucial. I solved the problem, um, and it's. It's. I need to get it documented because it is a new solution. I think that no one has come up with before, um, but it's there. Slash dev slash lrs, as in longest repeating string for anybody who's curious. Good. 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 We. I thought we t- did a show, but maybe we just talked about it. But we, we did just talk talked about, about it, it, didn't we? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. We did at the time, but I. And what I want to do is I. I think in order to convey it, it, it's a cool solution, and I wanted to animate it so that you could see it working in order to have that like that aha moment where it's like I I understand that because it it it's 
it's it's worthy. But so you know, one of these days after Spinrite six one, it's an, another thing that I'm pushing to the other side of Spinrite six one. But to be clear, it's not fuzzy matching. It's uh, it's, it's correct. It's direct, explicit matching. Correct. Yeah. And there were lots of applications like, you know, like genetics, like gene sequencing to, to find the longest run of, of gene sequences. I mean, th- what it is, is it's incredibly fast for finding the longest repeating string in a large corpus, which is turns out to be a rather hard problem in computer science. I would bet. Uh, I, I, I should, I've never looked at Greb's source code, but uh, I would bet, I would hope that the people who wrote the various regular expression parsing tools in various languages and various libraries would have done something that's efficient like that. That's one of the features. Well, one of the things that grep can do is... The, I know. don't think it can find a longest uh, duplicate string. So, see, the idea is you could say, find this string in something else. This goes... The, ne- the next step, it says, find the longest repetition not knowing what it is. So you're not asking for it to find a certain thing. You're saying, what's the longest string that occurs twice ah. in this entire text? Well, I'm sure so you can make an expression that does that, but I'm not sure I'd want to try. Yeah. I, I'd be surprised if you couldn't do that. <laughs> um, there's a great book, by the way, on grep that uh, I love. Oh, Mastering and, and Regular fact, Expressions, I think it's called. Yes, and I think I mentioned. Uh, oh no, it was on. I was on coding one hundred and one. By, by the way, I never mentioned this, but I've been on the last three I heard episodes that, of I haven't seen Padre's coding one hundred and one. What are you, what are you any, teaching assembly language? Um, um, the Padre just asked me to come and talk about stuff. Oh, um, that's great. And so for three, and because it, I, you know, I'm able to do that off the cuff. I don't have to do any prep. It, it wasn't stealing any time from from my work on Squirrel. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll show up. And so uh, I did that three times, but I was mentioning that that because um, the f- week before last I was talking about compilers and and versus assembly language, and some people took umbrage at the idea that you know I was saying, eh, you know, assembly language is more efficient than compilers. But I draw I drew the example I used regex as some as an example of something I would never want to have to write no. in assembler right. because. It's just it's a huge complex problem, and there are some things that make sense in assembly language. Other things, eh, they just really don't so much. This is uh, this is the book I was referring to by Jeffrey Friedel. It's a it's a computer science classic, and I own it. It's fun actually. It's it's a it's actually maybe that's how geeky you and I are, but it's actually a a fun (laughs) it's a fun book to read. Question uh, two. Sean Robinson, he wonders, whatever became of the Portable Sound Blaster project? Mr. G, Mr. G, give us an update. What's going on? Okay, so um, that similarly, I didn't update the pages for it at GRC just because I've sort of seemed didn't seem necessary. But enough people ask continuously that that I will get around to fixing that, too. Everything that happened happened in plain sight over on the google groups and so if you google portable sound blaster you will find group groups.google.com and i think it's just like slash portable sound blaster everything that you want to know is there including a, and i have at the top of the first page that comes up a zip file of the finished design 
Um, what we ended up with was a, a very elegant, very small and simple to build circuit, perfect for like a little father and son project, um, a, a bill of materials that you can all source from uh, digikey.com, which is a great source, an online source for electronics components. Um, and it produces a extremely loud, high-frequency <laughs> sound. Now, the, the problem was that what we learned was that from, from, from my re recounting my experiences with mine, people were wanting too much from it. They were saying, well, you know, two houses down, there's a barking dog. I, you know, I, and I want this to shut it up. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. That's just, it won't work. Or 25 yards away is a dog. It's like, well, no, it doesn't do that. Or, you know, I'm on the ninth floor and there's a dog barking on the third floor. It's like, sorry, no, <laughs> it, it won't do that. So, so what it will do is if you were being attacked, this would just stop a dog cold at three feet away from you. Because remember, that's what I did. That was my use for it, was basically at point-blank range to blast this ferocious German Shepherd in the face. And after a couple of those, it no longer lunged at the gate. But And then it did, you know, knock seagulls out of the sky. So it, it, there was that. Um, <laughs> but... but it's not gonna. It's not gonna keep a non barking dog from barking a long way away. That just isn't. We don't. Ha I don't think that technology exists. So, um, if, if you want a handheld defensive device, for example, a mailman, a mail. This would be perfect for a mailman who is being nipped at, or for dogs, you know, chasing him. And there were some people in the group who, and I should say a bunch of people successfully built it and it works wow. for them. That's neat. As a nice little handheld high-frequency blaster. It was funny, too, because some guys, that while they were building it and testing it, they couldn't hear it, but their teenage daughters upstairs Ooh, were oh complaining. Yeah. Dad, Dad, stop that. <laughs> yeah. So so that's where we are. Anybody who wants it, I haven't, moved, I haven't ever had time to transport that all back over to GRC, but it is portable sound blaster in a Google group, and uh, everything is there, the design plans and schematics, and, and everybody posted their, their results and pictures of their projects and, and everything. So we're going to stamp that one completed. Done. Done. Yes. Brian Tannehill in Overland Park, Kansas, has come up with an, maybe another use for Squirrel. When I log into the system at work from home... Uh, it's a VPN. I have to enter my log on and password information three times. First, I connect to the VPN. Then I connect to the network. And finally, I log into my own machine. Is it pr at the office? Would it be practical for an employer to use Squirrel uh, to simplify remote logins? So, naturally, my, my increasing... Uh, proximity to having Squirrel up and running and demonstrable and finished is, and and the fact that I, you know, over the holidays, I we we aired the the Digicert presentation uh, of it has stirred up a lot more interest. I don't want this podcast to become the Squirrel podcast um, just because there's a lot more going on, um, and so I've been responding to a lot of people just by mail who had questions. For example, someone was asking, "Hey, you know, if we had a static." 
QR code, could people use that? And I explained no, because one person's signature uh, could then be captured and it could be replayed in a classic replay attack in order to impersonate them, which is why the squirrel code needs to change every time and you need not to be able to use it more than once. Um, um, and so Brian, but, but Brian's question was a little different. And so I just sort of wanted to to capture everybody's questions and 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 say that there are indeed other things, many other things where this protocol could be used. Um, and in Brian's instance, absolutely, he's looking at various types of online logon, first to a VPN, um, then to his network, then to his machine. And I don't, it's not clear how his machine could log him in, but if, I mean, we know that that Windows, if it was a Windows system, um, you are able to replace the logon technology. I could easily imagine that Windows could prevent you, present you with a with a QR code, which uh, you would then see having remote connected to your machine on your VPN, then on your network. So you could very easily just present, you know, essentially three different QR codes at each stage. Either tap it and your local, the, the client on your machine would log you in or snap it with your smartphone uh, in order for, you know, to proceed through each stage. So, yeah, um, there are many different things. Basically, it needs to be an online login where you're challenged with a unique QR code to which only your Squirrel client is able to respond. And it's that simple, really. Question four comes from Andy Marks in Louisville, Kentucky, with some thoughts about improving Tor. As you said last week, vulnerabilities of Tor include analysis of timing, the size of the data. It seems a logical improvement in Tor is to mask the actual time by increasing it and setting a fixed or random data size. Even if it gets bulky, that could help mitigate the problems with Tor. Tor is a program that runs on a server changing Tor to do these two tasks and rolling out the ch changes shouldn't be unrealistic. I know it would be needed to test it. I don't see the big deal with Tor being changed to improve security. In addition, the number of Tor nodes and the amount of traffic, even if it is artificial, can improve Tor security. Does it make sense? A lot of programs are broken and need to be fixed. Tor can be fixed. Andy Marks, certified ethical hacker. So, okay, this question stands in for all of the similar questions that I encountered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and what, what, the reason I chose this one was Andy's conclusion was perfect for making my point. A lot of programs broken and need to be fixed. Tor can be fixed. No, it can't. Oh. And so I, I love that Andy finished that way because – what I hoped to convey, and and I will I will underscore it, is that this isn't a problem with Tor. This is asking Tor to do something it really can't do. It's not a bug. It it's not you know adding something more. It's that the internet resists anonymity. It I mean it's the nature of it actively resists 
providing that. It wasn't designed to provide anonymity. It, it isn't good at it. And so we're, we're trying to – and I, I, Tor needs to be considered an experiment. Usable, yes. Worthwhile, yes. Better than nothing, yes. Perfect, no. And nothing can make it perfect. It, it can't be fixed. It, you, you, yes, you could have more nodes. Um, but then, you know, the, 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 uh, the nation state uh, organization just needs to monitor more of it. And in fact, some of the studies demonstrated that just being centrally located gave a single entity enough information in order to, to de-anonymize people. And then there's that problem of you being able to use Tor to confirm a, an identity, which is an even more powerful attack against it. So the point I wanted to make is not that it not should be scrapped, but that it was originally created as an experiment, that it certainly has its purpose. Communication does go in, and you know not where it's going to come out. Um, it provides anonymity services. I just wanted to sort of say that researchers have broken that guarantee, and there's no fix. You could continue to do things to sort of water down or make it more difficult to, to break its, its to, 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 um, to, to make it more difficult to break that anonymity guarantee, but we're in like in that, we're in that fuzzy world where we're trying to do something which is fundamentally I don't want to say impossible, but kind of impossible, like denial of service attacks where they just keep getting bigger. And so we keep making the pipes bigger to absorb them. And so they get bigger. It's, it's like that. The Internet wasn't designed to provide this. It just won't. End of story. Yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of tweets. People say, oh, you guys don't understand, or blah, blah, blah. And right. I think you do. <laughs> I'm going to just say... I think Steve knows what he's talking about. Well, and the people who were most upset with me were, were Tor, Tor users, were, were Tor node, well, or Tor node, node operators, yeah. operators yeah. who were like, "Well, he doesn't know what he's talking about." It's like, well, and they didn't listen to the podcast; they just saw some of the Twitter traffic right. and you know jumped right. in for the ride. So right. it's like, yeah, okay. Justin Aborn in uh, Boston, he wants to know or how to be sure about emailed links. He wants to know how to yeah. whether to click on them. My bank just emailed me a clickable link. I'm 99.9% sure it's truly them, but I navigate to their site by hand, and rather than click on the emailed link, to check the fit of my tinfoil hat, what do you recommend is the minimum procedure to confidently click an emailed URL? It would be a lot more convenient if we could just click on them. Yeah, and I like this also because in the context of Anthem, as you said, Leo, and, you know, we're seeing now a big phishing wave of fake email coming out. The only way, you know, I mean, the, the old school way is to look at the email headers, which are generally available, but boy, that's confusing. And the headers are, are, are highly prone to being spoofed. The I think the only thing I could suggest, first of all, is don't. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just they're just you know it's really not worth it. But if you have to, what you need to do is look at the source. That is, you need to be able to examine the source of the email. The problem is that email today is HTML, and 
there's there's what you see is the result of the HTML markup, which has created a presentation. And so you can see text that is underlined that says, click here to, you know, to email Anthem. Um, or I don't think he gave an example or, his, you know, his bank. And in fact, it can even you can even show you HTTP colon slash slash bank of dot com like with no typos exactly that URL, except that that's the presentation of the HTML. The markup is in brackets on either side of that, and it's hidden from you by design by the browser, by the by the browser or now you know email has become HTML. So your your email client is hiding that on purpose to give you a nice, visible, simplified link to click on. So it's only by looking at the source that you can verify what is the, the the actual URL that you're going to click on if you did. And you might very well see that that HTTP colon slash slash www.bankofamerica.com inside of, of brackets where where on the left-hand side there is, you know, HTTP colon slash slash fake bank of america website.com which is the actual url that you will visit if you click that link it's only by looking at the source that you can know and the other problem is scripting gets involved too because there could be an on click phrase even if the if the if the href as it's called is correct if there was an on click it turns out the JavaScript gets invoked before the href in the link is visited. Um, I just was dealing with all of this as it happens because I've added automation to the Squirrel demo so that when you authenticate with a client, the web page, the, the Squirrel demo web page immediately and instantly updates itself to show you that you're now logged in. So I was visiting all this and the JavaScript uh, is invoked first. And that could be in, a, in an included library that you don't even see. So, boy, um, unfortunately, the bad guys have a real advantage here. And I hope maybe I've made the case for my first recommendation, which is don't. So, if because- you, so a number of people in the chat room are saying if you uh, – in some email clients, if, for instance, you hover your mouse over the – uh, you know, the real problem is that the presentation layer is HTML that yep. hides what the actual link is, even if it looks like it's a link, as you said. But if you hover your mouse over that, can you capture on hover in JavaScript and prevent the status line from showing the actual URL? Or am I going to uh, see the actual URL in the status line at that point? Um, whether you w- whether it was in the uh, status line or sometimes it comes up as, as, as a little as a tool, tool tip, tip right, right there. Yep. Right. Unfortunately, that will show you the static href, not the on-click on click. call. And that's what yes. you're going to go to is what happens when you click. So yes. it can actually be so obfuscated that it's even JavaScript. That. Yeah. Right. And you can't, you know, you say, well, view source. But even then, the JavaScript could be further ob- obfuscated. You wouldn't oh, see yeah. anything that says HTTP. You might see just nonsense. Yeah. Wow. So hovering is not going to do it. Not even that. Um, 
you really just shouldn't. You should, uh, I guess, what you should do is manually go to the website by hand, enter enter the URL. I really think, yes. In fact, uh, I think that so right uh, click, copy, and paste isn't going to do it either. Nope. It, it won't. It won't it, because you're actually you're going to execute code as a result of clicking on that. Wow. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Uh, that's great. That's, uh, I think, frankly, turn off HTML email, period. Um, it shouldn't be allowed. It's a bad idea. And, 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 and scripting in email. We, yeah. I mean, how many, how many, <laughs> how much malware yeah. has crawled into people's machines yeah. from, from email scripting? Yeah. 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 A good email client will not do HTML. Unfortunately, most of us now use web browsers to do a, to do email. Right. Which means you're screwed. Right. <laughs> Basically, don't you, you click are, that link. You're receiving a web page from someone you have no control over. You don't know who they are. They're claiming to be somebody who's, you know, working on, on your benefit. Yeah, the best advice, um, and I don't remember where it originated, if it was from Brian Krebs or someone else, but I loved it. And we've discussed it here through the years, and that is Never do something that somebody that you never do something that you didn't go in search of. If something, you know, if if a pop up says, oh, you need to update your flash player. No. You know, if you weren't going, if you if you didn't have some reason to go looking to update your flash player, don't accept an offer to do so. You just you just can't do that safely. Back it up. All right. Moving on to. uh Michael Horowitz, who, by the way, wrote Computer World's defensive or writes Computer World's defensive computing column. So, so yep. there, uh, he says. Just an FYI, Steve, for those of us with separate routers and modems, it turns out you can communicate with a modem via a private IP address, even through a router. I tested this with multiple modems and routers, and it's in his Computer Word article. Uh, Talk to your modem. This could be for a useful feature for learning about an ISP connection. My next blog post will detail how it's a bad thing. Some modems have clickable buttons and no passwords, letting letting malicious JavaScript click the buttons. Ay, ay, ay. Yep. Uh, it's funny because it, by coincidence, I was just uh, working with a buddy of mine who was having a problem with this cable modem, and he had a Motorola surfboard. Uh, is it a surfboard? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it turns out that the Motorola's the Motorola's LAN-facing interface responds to 198. Uh, I mean 192.168, and, and there's a picture of it. You've got it right yep. uh, uh, up there. 192.168.100.1. So, so that's a private network on the LAN side. So then your router, which is behind it. Uh, it probably becomes 192.168.100.2. That is the, a, a, another, on, on its WAN side, it's on that network to the cable modem. And then, of course, on the LAN side of the router is the IP we're all familiar, the, the, the set of IPs, you know, things like 192.168.0. something or .1. something. And the point is that, and, and this is what my, Michael was noting, was that if you, is that the, the router will send anything not in its LAN network outside. So that inside, 
you can do 192.168.100.1. The router will see that that's not .0.1 or .1.1 or something in its network. So the 192.168.100.1 goes out the WAN interface, reaches the cable modem, where you can now bring that up. And apparently he's gone further um, and there are nasty things that could be done by, by as, as he said, by JavaScript running in a browser to penetrate your router and get to your cable modem, uh, which he'll be talking about in the future. I just wanted to raise the flag to our listeners who may have a separate router and modem that that's possible. And I can vouch for the fact that, in fact, it is. <sighs> Never I, yeah, a dull moment. <laughs> but it's, yeah, and I, but I do have to say the information that you're getting from the modem is kind of interesting to see what the cable modem's up in, to. In fact, in fact, that that that's why we did this over the weekend right. was you you're, you're able to get the signal strength yeah. of up, upstream and downstream yeah. and and like really useful. Uh, you know, useful diagnostic information to see how many channels you've got bonded, you know, what kind of, of, of connection it's got up upstream and downstream to the ISP. How do you find so, the uh, the uh, private IP address for the modem? You just Google it, the, the model and Google it? Or? Um, you could look at the WAN IP oh, of your attached. router. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, there you go. But it's interesting because he gave the example of 100.1, and that's what we found this yeah. weekend. That That's what apparently they, they generally use. Interesting. I'm yeah. going to try it tonight. I have a, biz, a Comcast business account, so I have a business class router. Uh, I don't know who makes it, but that'll be interesting to play with. Glenn, yeah. Glenn Musser in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and Fort Myers, Florida. Little snowbird. <laughs> little snowbird action there. Wonders about Cloudflare's SSL option. Steve, I have a few websites with non-sensitive information. I've used Cloudflare.com's free services for some time, and I recently turned on their flexible SSL feature. They explain that visitors have SSL between the visitor and Cloudflare. The visitor sees HTTPS on the site, but, of course, no SSL between Cloudflare and my web server. For example, SeniorTechGroup.com supports my free tech group pairings. Uh, gatherings. I don't get paid in any way, so I don't want the extra cost of paying for an SSL certificate. My site, when you go there, SeniorTechGroup.com, shows the green lock in the web browser. But does that have any value? Any huh. downsides? Thanks for your great podcast. I listen to every one. You inspire many security discussions at our tech group gatherings. And then he gives a link to the Cloudflare SSL help page. So, um... This is sort of a mixed blessing. I, I was a little disturbed to see Cloudflare doing this. They, they really are responsible about reminding and explaining that this is not actually providing any security. The problem is I'm not sure what value it offers to show people. Yes, that you're showing it there on the screen. It looks good. I see a green padlock and everything. Yeah, and the problem is, in fact, it's not a secure connection to the destination web server. Essentially, Cloudflare is acting like a proxy that is stripping SSL security from the connection. And again, they make it very clear and they say, you know, this is not safe, yet they're, they're offering it. And I don't get why they're offering it because it, uh, it's... It's I mean, okay, so 
what benefit is there? There would be the benefit in an open Wi-Fi setting of, of the traffic from the person surfing to that site getting to Cloudflare servers, that is, out of the open, unencrypted environment. Similarly, in a, in a hotel setting, for example, where you either have open Wi-Fi or maybe a shared Ethernet. We've discussed that at length in, in years past. So you would have encryption to prevent eavesdropping to Cloudflare servers. They're then going to terminate the SSL connection at them. Essentially, they're synthesizing a certificate on the fly in order to terminate that connection. Then they set up a non-SSL connection back to the actual target server. So mm, no security exists there, and anybody sniffing the Internet would be able to see the traffic. And so the only, I guess the only concern is that there, there could be some tendency to trust what should not really be trusted to the degree we would be used to trusting it, but I can't argue that, for example, encrypting in an open Wi-Fi setting is a useful thing to offer. That's that's better than not having any at all. So, um, I, so there's there's that value. Um, you can examine I, the certificate, and you'll see that it belongs to Cloudflare. But yeah, I don't know I, if the people who use this site would do that. Yeah, given that given that it is now that, that annual expiring certificates can be had for free, Glenn. Maybe it makes more sense just to get a free certificate from Rapid SSL or start, I think it was startssl.com. Um, use their free one-year certificate. It does require an annual annoyance of updating the certificate, but it never costs you anything. And I, then, then you've got, you know, your own HTTPS and, and real security, and you can still run that through Cloudflare. The, you know, they're able to, to then uh, create a secure connection to your server as well. Question eight comes to us from Justin Maloney in Lacey, Washington. He thinks he's found a host's vulnerability. What would happen if an attacker were able to intercept and modify regular HTTP traffic and then add the HSTS header as a traffic is passing by? Would this force devices to attempt to make a secure connection to a server that doesn't support it? Or does the implementation of HSTS require the client device be able to see a certificate prior to caching the STS header? Well, I love this question. I take my hat off to Justin for thinking, for recognizing the problem. The good news is the designers of the HTTP strict transport security, which is what HSTS stands for, thought of it too. The, the problem that Justin notes is that once you have given a, a once a server has supplied the HSTS um, header to the client, the client will cache it and until that HSTS header expires and the expiration is part of what the client receives, the client will refuse non-secure connections. So what if a server that did not offer um, HSTS support, that is an, just a regular HTTP server, what if somebody maliciously intercepted that interceptable 
connection. It's interceptable because it's not secure and tacked one of those HSTS headers into the server's response going back to the client. Then the client would go, oh, the, the, this site is saying from now on always use HSTS. And it would then refuse not to. And if the server didn't support it, it would break the, that client's ability to connect. The, the HSTS guys foresaw that problem. And so the rule is no client will accept an HSTS header unless, the, unless it is receiving it over an SSL connection, which is completely verified with an up-to-date cert and in every way correct from the server. So that prevents exactly this malicious attack, which Justin foresaw. Brilliant. Very cool. Number nine, Paul Dove in Hampton, the United, United Kingdom, wonders whether there's a way to block Flash completely in every browser. Oh, I like that. I see. With yet another Flash vulnerability in the news this week, I think it's time we got rid of it completely. But with Flash built into the Chrome browser, it's not that easy, even if you disable the plugin for yourself. I've still seen it enabled for other users of the PC. I've Googled for a registry hack or something like that to permanently disable Flash for all users, but couldn't find anything. Then I wondered, is there a way to configure a firewall to block all Flash content? Do you think that's possible? Well, once upon a time, before all of our communications was encrypted... <laughs> it would have been possible. There was. Do you remember Proxometron, Leo? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Proxometron was a really a very cool local proxy. The idea being that your browser connected to it, and then it connected to the internet yeah. on your browser's behalf, just like a proxy. And it was a you. Know, you could create rules that did all kinds of cool things. People used it to change their their hosts header, their 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 user agent to do all basically to to tune and tweak their their web browser uh, interaction. And one of the things you could do, for example, would be to and, and Proxometron did this would be to examine a page coming back from a server and like strip out things that you didn't want to have. And for example, flash tags were often stripped out or, or ads were, were stripped out, all kinds of things. The problem is now we've, we're increasingly going to security, uh, to, to, to SSL, TLS connections that nothing can see into between your browser and the remote server. Um, I poked around at Chrome, and I don't see anything other than going to Chrome colon slash slash plugins. That's not something that is normally available at the settings page. Uh, there you can see extensions, but not plugins. But if in Chrome, you go to you up in the URL, you put Chrome colon slash slash plugins, no hyphens or anything, just P-L-U-G-I-N-S. That'll take you to a page most people don't normally see, which lists rather comprehensively all kinds of things that, that are typically enabled unless there's some problem that Chrome has found. All the things that, you've, that Chrome can bring to bear in order to display pages. 
Um, and Adobe Flash Player is right there uh, among them. Now, as Leo is pointing to right here in the podcast, you are able to dis disable it. When you click that, it turns a, like it grays out the whole region, showing you that it is no longer enabled. And then you can click it again to enable it. But as, as, um, as Paul noted, that's a per-user setting. Nothing that I could find in Chrome is global. So I don't see a solution other than going to each user's um, session and manually disabling Flash, uh, the, the Adobe Flash plugin for that user um, and, you know, and, and that login session. That's the only thing I can see uh, to do it. Can we at least and, say that uh, Flash and Chrome is safer because it's it is sandboxed, isn't it? And they keep it up to date for you and all that. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I I think that using it in Flash is a better place. Um, when I opened Chrome because I'm not in there a lot, mine was auto grayed out with a warning that it was it was no longer current, oh. and so. I updated Flash because we just had those two zero days. In fact, that, that, that's what triggered Paul's email is that all of these zero-day vulnerabilities. And then it came back to life, uh, and then I manually disabled it because I just as soon fly without it if I can. You can. So, but if – okay. So updating Chrome does not automatically update the Flash in Chrome? I think it does, think it but – You just but, don't but update Chrome I'm, enough. Exactly. I'm not running Chrome often enough to give it a chance right. to auto-update. But it does. It absolutely – in fact, the notes from Adobe talk about Chrome and IEs. I, IE is also now keeping Chrome up to date itself. Yeah. Um, both of Flash, them yeah. – Adobe. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, both of them Adobe was working with in order to get – to push these zero days out to both Google and to Microsoft – so that they, in turn, could get them out to their browser users. Well, I am now disabling Flash. I'll see what happens. Yeah. Unfortunately, you need it to watch, for instance, Twit on Ustream and some of our other... Although, you know, now that Google's YouTube has eliminated Flash entirely, it's all uh, HTML5. I know. It's 100% it's HTML5. I just think we're getting to that point where everything will be HTML5. H, they call it'll, it HLS. It'll, it'll, there is a... Didn't I just was it on one of your podcasts? There's a compiler now that's compiling JavaScript into oh no, it's compiling Flash into shock, Java. Uh, the SWF into HTML5 yeah. and JavaScript. Yeah. So we're seeing really I think we're approaching the end of that, which you know is it can't come too soon because I mean here they are now still, you know, two zero day exploits, people actively um, infecting people's computers sometimes with flash-based ads um uh, that's a real problem because a lot of these page. ad networks are automatic yahoo and yep. google don't really yep. check the contents of the ads and so it's yep. easy to buy an ad that has malware in it um yep. somebody's saying you i don't know if this works but you know you can if you modify the this let's say you have other users on your machine you've disabled it I guess you could just go into their browser and disable it, but you could also uh, create a new shortcut uh, bookmark or uh, icon that says no f dash dash no flash chrome.exe. Ah, so maybe so, that's so, another... so that at launch so that at launch at time launch it's disabled. Yeah, it's disabling. Yes. Yeah, I haven't tried that, but somebody said try that. And that's that's Windows, of course. That's a, a great hint. Brian Williams, not that Brian Williams in Kentucky. Although maybe he is, I don't know. <laughs> Wonders about I think he's, hi he's, <laughs> he's hiding, hiding, hiding in Kentucky. 
wonders yes. about personal certificates. Steve, we hear a lot about server certificates, but what about personal certificates? I mean, each side of a TLS key exchange requires a cert, right? What else can we do to beef up the crypto on our end for our client apps that do SSL TLS? Can we periodically generate new certs with higher bit lengths than default? Thanks for all you do. So I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding that I wanted to address in Brian's question. Um, it is not the case that each end of an SSL connection uses a certificate. Each end can, and it's possible for the server side for some connections um, that, that are sort of like based on the server's configuration to query the client and require a client certificate. Um, and it is good security to do so. Um, the idea being that you would install a, a user certificate or a client certificate in the browser and, and then that would assert your identity to the server in exactly the same way that the server's identity is being asserted to the client. That is, when we go to, you know, grc.com, for example, um, or Amazon or Google over an HTTPS connection, that, that remote server's identity is being asserted and guaranteed by it, the certificate that it is sent. Similarly, clients can offer certificates, not just username and password or other stuff, but an actual SSL certificate can be installed on the client. But it never really caught on. It's not the way people typically operate. Apps can have client certs, which they use in order to assert their app identity to a remote, like, like to the company that publishes them when they want to... Uh, establish security where each end is authenticated. But again, that's not the typical browsing experience. Most browsing is single side authentication where that side is the server, not the user. Steve, you did it again. <laughs> Ten questions. We've come to the end of our Q&A episode number 200. Six. Six. Almost as many question and answers as Microsoft has updates today. And uh, I, was it close? Clo it was close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I thank you uh, for doing such a bang-up job to help keep us all safe and secure on the Internet and um, remind people that they should go to Steve's website, grc.com, to get a copy of Spinrite. Yes, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And also all the freebies he offers like Squirrel. And you can find out more about all the stuff he's up to. All this, You should have a science fiction page too, by the way, with all the recommendations yeah. in there and stuff. Uh, you can also find the, this show. He, has, uh, he, he actually has two forms of the show. He has the 16 kilobit audio, the very low bandwidth audio for people who don't want to download a giant audio file. Uh, but he also does transcriptions, which are the smallest version of all. Um, great transcriptions by Elaine Ferris. You can get all of that at grc.com slash security now. We will do questions again in a couple of episodes. If you want to leave him a question, it, don't bother to email. Just grc.com slash feedback. Or you can tweet him at sggrc. And uh, that's a good way to get a hold of him. Steve actually is quite active on Twitter now. It's, uh, a, great, it's a great social medium. Yeah, it is. I agree. 
Um, let's see, what else? Oh, we have full quality audio and video on our site, twit.tv slash SN. So you can watch Steve as he answers those questions and waves his hands. You can can also subscribe, which is probably the best thing to do. That way you'll get every episode automatically. That's kind of the idea behind podcasts. iTunes has it. Every, Every single podcatcher in the world, including all your apps on your smartphone and everything, they all have security now because it is one of the longest running shows on uh, podcasting. Uh, Ten years soon, yes? And it seems to be having the reverse of pod fade. The reverse of pod fade. That's what we we specialize in. Reverse (laughs) pod fade. Uh, So, yeah, please do subscribe. That way you'll get it. Or, you know, get one of the great Twit apps on every platform, including uh, iOS, Android, Windows Phone, and Roku. And you can watch, like, on the big screen TV if you want. On your Samsung. You can talk to Steve, and the Samsung will respond. That's fun. Or the Alexa. (laughs) One or the other. Sorry. Oh, man. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, Lisa. (laughs) The A A word. (laughs) Alexa, thank Lisa for listening for us, will you? (laughs) Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo.